chai lovers, fellow pre-meds, and medical enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of Chai with the Pre-Med Guys, where my friend Saeed Khan and myself, Vali Pirzada, share with you the stories of experienced medical students and medical professionals. Our hope is that through these stories, you might find the answers to questions or challenges you've been facing in your pursuit to medicine. For this week's Chai Time, we have a very special guest over. Joining us today is a bundle of talent, knowledge, and kindness from right across the road, someone who's just as much, if not more, of a chai lover as me and Saeed. We have Dr. Rashmi Advani. Though Dr. Advani works at the Stony Brook Hospital as a physician, she didn't get there overnight. As a student in Hunter College not too long ago, she performed exceedingly well and decided to choose the pre-med route. In her gap year after college, she works as an EMT, gaining a ton of clinical experience and knowledge. She then attended medical school at SUNY Downstate, following which she did her residency at the Montefiore Medical Center. I'm not sure if I said that right but it's in the city. Now she's doing her fellowship at the Stony Brook University Hospital and that too in the competitive field of GI. In her fairly male dominated department, she is one of only three female fellows for GI. Now, Dr. Advani, not only are you in your sixth year practicing as a physician, but you've also been all around almost the entire state of New York, at least for me. But we can't wait to hear all the pearls of wisdom an experienced physician and master New Yorker such as yourself has to offer. Moving on to you, Dr. Advani. First of all, I'd like to say hello to all the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast by Wally and Saeed. Um, I am extremely honored to be here to talk to you guys about my journey through medicine, a little bit about GI, a little bit about myself. Um, uh, you guys are all in really, really good hands uh, with both Wally and Saeed. So, um, but yes, I am a native New Yorker, a little bit by myself. I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker, born and raised in Queens. Essentially did all of my schooling in New York City. And now I'm in Long Island uh, doing my GI fellowship. Uh, so uh, you almost said it correctly, <laughs> Wally. Um, it's Montefiore. But some people do say Montefiore, and I think both uh, pronunciations are totally okay. Um, but yes, that was in the Bronx, um, and I did I did my medical school in Brooklyn, um, both in very underserved community GI fellowship, and actually a pretty diverse patient population as well. So um, I'm happy to also talk about that at some point uh, during this conversation. Absolutely, thank you so much, Dr. Advani, for coming on. I remember the first time you actually messaged us to uh to like, actually like um plan some event or make like an episode and we were so so excited and i'm actually very excited i like just stuttered a little bit that's all the excitement coming out so i'm just gonna get started with uh, our conversation and i will definitely say like as a pre-med student i have been asked this question so many times and i'm pretty sure as a med student i will all like also be asked this question it is the key question to being a physician and why you want to be a physician so transporting you back to your, I guess, pre-med and med school years, I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Advani, why did you pursue this long journey to become a physician? That's a really good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, so I think I kind of fell into medicine a little bit differently um, than some people. I think, you know, uh, and I, I, I kind of, when I talk to a lot of other people who've like kind of gone through uh, similar experiences, I actually didn't know I was going to become a doctor until like much later. And I, I even, even while applying to medical school and having all those insecurities and uncertainties, I still, even at that point thought, 
you know, there might be a chance of me not becoming a doctor or fulfilling my dream. But, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who like at the age of five, I was playing with a stethoscope. Um, I, you know, I, I liked dance, I liked um, teaching, and I come from a family of teachers. So I really thought that was kind of what I was going to be going into for a big part of my life. Um, but where, where I started falling in love with kind of science and medicine, I think I always had a proclivity towards like learning the sciences and um, getting excited, excited about science projects. I did extremely well in like all my science courses and failed miserably in all my English courses, um, <laughs> despite English being my first language. But um, it was really, I think, in college where um, I definitely knew I, I liked the sciences. I liked the teaching aspect, um, but um, I, I, I wasn't sure if I should, you know, have more exposure, especially in like kind of the, um, the clinical setting. So I set up some like volunteer experiences where I was like volunteering in the emergency room at Cornell. Um, and I did some like research. And I think over time, I just felt like this is where my skills and my knowledge was could be best utilized. And, and, um, you know, I'm not one of those people who like, you know, um, woke up one morning and was just like, oh yeah, aha, I'm going to become a doctor. You know, um, I felt like there were a lot of challenges, a lot of struggles along the way, you know, and um, as we kind of spoke about earlier, it, I never, I like, I think, you know, maybe some people had, you know, family members who were in medicine or they had like, call, like friends who were like pursuing medicine, but that wasn't the case for me. I think everyone around me was not pursuing medicine and they were doing something totally different. So I had to do a lot of my like my own research um, on like the actual process of getting in, which is an intimidating process for sure. <laughs> I'm sure you guys know and are experiencing that now. And I think a lot of listeners um, are probably going through the same things right now. So I feel I feel for you guys, and I, I you know I am also going through a similar process of like you know the next stages in my career, and a lot of it is still uncertain. So. Anyway, that goes back to like a long-winded answer of, um, I, it was a culmination of my experiences that really w w made me go into medicine. And the reason why I didn't become, I didn't pursue like PA or nursing or um, pharmacies because I really wanted to impact my patients in a way that, um, I, where I could utilize my knowledge to like its full power. Um, and I felt like I was able to really like understand science in a way that I felt um, could benefit patients as as me being a, their doctor rather than me being, being their nurse or like their PA or which are all great fields. And I think, you know, it just takes a different types, types of personalities to pursue different fields in medicine. Um, but I wanted to be in charge and I wanted I wanted to have that. Um, final say and like what you know what uh, my patient what types of tr uh, treatments my patient needs or you know I wanted to have that that type of control. I think pre-med life and undergrad years are always a foundational part in cementing your reason as a student for wanting to pursue a career as a physician and one thing that that I think is somehow it's happened today is that students have so many resources so many different places that all this information is coming from as to what they should get involved in, what activities they should do. 
But I wanted to ask you personally, what's one thing that you've done in your undergrad life that you feel made you a better physician, made you more prepared for your medical journey? So, um, again, a really good question. And I think my answer is not going to be very typical because I had a, a circuitous way into medical school. Um, so, you know, in addition to my experience in the emergency room, seeing like the acuity of patients, the different, it, it was, you know, Cornell in the, in New York city is situated in a place where it, it does un- serve a lot of underserved patients, uh, Hispanic populations, uh, patients without insurance. Um, it wasn't just that experience that I felt like really cultivated my ability to understand people in general. So I think if you're, you're pursuing medicine, yes, you need to have the knowledge. Yes, you need to have all the grades and you know, that's, that's all part of it. But I think part of the reason, part of the, um, the qualities of being a good doctor is knowing, like l- knowing how to listen to your to the person in front of you. It doesn't have to be a patient, it's just, a, just a person. Listening to what they have to say and digesting that information and seeing how you can help them with the information that they're giving you. So I, um, and it, it, you know, being in the most diverse city, one of the most diverse cities in the world, um, you would think like, you know, you have all that diversity in your classrooms, but you know, it's not just those experiences. Um, my, I think the major experience that helped me was when I was um, doing my year off um, uh, in between undergrad and medical school, where I was working as a as like an assistant manager slash hostess in the city. So it's something totally completely unrelated to medicine. And I, you know, it's something I do encourage like people who are pursuing medicine that it's not all about like you having a, like a clinical exposure, medical exposure, although like having those experiences help you with your CV and getting into medical school and et cetera. But you need experiences that are, that are going to build you as a person and give you those life experiences that are not teachable. Those are things that are not, they're not something that you can like sit there on a chalkboard and say, okay, these are the things that you need to do to be, you know, a compassionate, kind human being. Um, which is a require, like, I think is a requirement to being a good physician anyway. Um, so as being in that, being in that role, um, in that restaurant had me exposed to like a wide array of people from all around the world. Um, it was a, it was a pretty well-known restaurant and, um, it attracted people from all walks of life. And I felt like part of my job was actually to have conversations with these people because I was a hostess. So um, I had these like very intriguing um, eye opening conversations that I felt, I feel like otherwise in my little bubble in in New York city, I wouldn't have had. Um, So I think having that understanding of like what, you know, what types of um, backgrounds people can come from, what types of modes of thinking, you know, you have to, kind of understand uh, that process in order to be um, as open and as uh, accommodating as a physician. Yeah, I definitely completely agree with um, your very different outlook into medicine where working as a hostess gave you a different perspective to medicine. And honestly, personally to me, medicine can be a very scientific field and it is a very scientific field, but at the root and at the center of medicine are patients and patients are people. So it is very important for us to know how to work with people, how to extract 
um, information from people in a way that makes them feel like comfortable and makes them come back to you because, you know, return visits are as important as your first visits. So to like build that patient doctor relationship and in the way I kind of like experienced that for the first time is when I actually shadowed a physician, but sometimes in our pre-med life, it actually becomes, it's actually like a very weird thing because right now a lot of pre-meds go into the checkbox mentality of, Oh, I need to shadow a physician because for my ex application because of X, Y, Z, not because to understand, Oh, how does a patient doctor relationship form? So I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Advani, what, advice do you have for pre-meds who are looking to shadow physicians, but essentially trying to get the most out of their experience, not just sitting on the side when they're talking to their patient, like what type of question should they ask? What type of direction should they take? And what specialty should they even go into make the most of their experience? So I think that has a little bit to do. So one of the main um, pieces of advice that I can give to someone in a high school position, pre-medical, or even someone who's like thinking about a second degree or a second, you know, career, um, is advocating for yourself and advocating for um, what you want out of an experience. And I know that's easier said than done because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know like what experiences are something that you need to have at that moment in order to make that aha decision. And I, I, and I think for everybody, it's a little different. And that formula is pretty different for everyone who can end up in the same location. Like I can tell you where I currently am as a GI fellow, my co-fellows have had all different paths and all different experiences. We had someone who ended up doing a surgical residency and then went into GI fellowship. So what I would say that, that there's no clear cut formula for anybody at it going into medicine, that's kind of the beauty of it because you want people, when they come into medicine, you want people to have that, you, you want that group of people to have all these different experiences so you're not like this one monotonous like program, right? You want these people to have like uh, maybe an art major, you want someone to have a poli-sci major. You know, it's not, I think the way medicine is thought about nowadays is that we're looking for um, young, brilliant, uh, future physicians who have different experiences. So that's one thing. I would say um, if you are starting a rotation or you are having a volunteer experience and whoever your supervisor is, and that that supervisor should be maybe like a physician, um, I would say, not a resident, not a fellow, but someone who's like, you know, head of the department. And I would cold turkey email them for a meeting um, and kind of set expectations. I setting expectations I think kind of is not only important in your stage of your career but like even later on and that's something that I'm doing right now even with people that I'm rotating with and you know exposing myself to a totally different area of medicine so setting those expectations advocating for yourself is important to getting the exposure that you think you need that being said um, I would also leave it up to the person that you're shadowing and I'll go into, you know, who you think, you know, probably you should shadow, but um, you should ask them what they think is important for you to learn from what they can teach you. Because everybody, everyone in medicine has a different niche and has a different way of approaching patients. So, you know, one way, just because look, one way, one person has a, some way of approaching patients might not necessarily be the way you want to approach your patients, but it's important for you to see that 
how, how that interaction happens. So I will say like, you know, I had a, I, when I, when, when I transitioned from my pediatrician to my adult medicine doctor, I actually didn't like the way she um, conducted the visit with me. And I knew these were the, these were the, the, these were kind of like the culmination of moments where I was like, Oh my God, like, I don't want this. I don't want to be that type of doctor. So um, that being said, um, I think, so A, advocating for yourself, B, um, setting expectations with a person, having open conversations. And I think you doing that shows a big level of maturity that you know we do look for um, in people who are applying to medicine. You do need a baseline level of maturity um, if you wanna become a doctor or any, any, anyone in the healthcare profession because you are gonna be dealing with very sensitive topics and let, you know, sensitive situations. Um, and then the person that you, you should probably shadow, I don't think there is a particular person you should shadow, but I would say in order to get like a whole understanding of the medical specialty, I would say someone maybe in primary care or internal medicine. And that way I think, um, you will have an idea at least. So there are two branches of, of, um, medicine. There's surgery, procedural, and then there's medicine, um, non-procedural, which in, in it of itself, I'm actually in a medical specialty <laughs> and I'm doing procedures, but that's outside of this. But I think if you're going to shadow someone, um, I would choose someone in internal medicine, primary care. And then if you have the time, it's not a requirement, but if you have the time to see if you can shadow someone in the OR as a proceduralist. And that way, at least you'll have an idea, okay, do I like procedures? Do I not like procedures? And you don't have to make any decision now, but you know, the idea is just kind of see what each environment looks like. And if you fit into, if you could potentially fit into either environment in the future. Dr. Devani, one thing you said that really stuck with me was how we have such a gap in our understanding as pre-med students and how, how we barely even know what the medical fields are, what the specialties are. And, you know, we might think we know everything, but we really don't. So I just wanted to ask, you know, have you had any sort of experience where social media, all of its benefits aside, sort of fills in of what medicine might be? Or, um, you know, when someone thinks surgery, they, they automatically go to Grey's Anatomy and whatnot. And I was, I was just wondering how that interplay of maybe glamour, um, perceived glamour as a student, and then finally going into the career and realizing the rigor of the field, how that's worked for you. And perhaps you know, you, you have your own page, Dr. Scopes with Guts, how that works into it, you know, is that some sort of gap that students have that you, you want to bridge um, using, that, using that page, you know, maybe bring students closer to realizing what medicine really is? So I just wanted to know your personal experience with that. Yeah, um, so that's a pretty good question. And in my day and age, and I, I feel like I'm talking now, like I'm like really, really old, but um, I, we, we didn't have the liberty of having um, that level of social media exposure. I think, you know, at that time we had Facebook and Instagram, which is kind of coming out. And, you know, there weren't many physicians or healthcare providers in that space. And it's um, because social media was not an accept accepted platform for us to be on. Meaning like in our professions, um, it was discouraged for us to talk about our personal experiences inside and outside of the hospital because it wasn't uh, viewed as professional. Now that's all changing in the last few years, especially with the with COVID, I've, you know, there are a lot of people coming out now and like speaking about the realities of medicine and sharing their experiences, which I think 
you know, benefits, really benefits um, the, the new generation of young physicians. Um, but you're right, there, there is a glamorized part and there is a non-glamorized part. And I, I, I got to be honest with you, when I started this whole journey into being public on social media not too long ago, um, I think back in May, um, I had seen both sides. I'd seen accounts where I was like, oh my God, every, you look perfect and like your, your scrubs are perfect and your pictures are perfect and everything's perfect about your page. And and, and like somehow you're a surgeon and I'm like, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't translate well for me. So what I um, found to be most helpful is even now, because I'm looking into this other field of GI that um, I don't think I would have have known had it not been for social media and had, had it not been for certain accounts that I started to follow. And I was like, Oh, this is, this is an area of GI that I might be interested in. Um, so um, what I've started to do is look for accounts that, really provide meaningful information and not just pretty pictures or pretty videos. Um, I looked for accounts that like really um, talked about the realities of medicine and um, there is some sort of like shared understanding. Um, so I, you know, I'd say from like, you know, your perspective, def definitely looking for accounts that um, you can really learn from. I, I don't, I'm not someone who can learn from a pretty picture and someone in scrubs. I just, that's just not who I am. I, and the reason why I've, I am on social media is to, like you mentioned, actually quite eloquently is to bridge a gap um, that I think, uh, especially for in GI, I, I don't think it was there. I, I saw a lot of pretty pictures of gastroenterologists and I was like, wow, this is really not at all what we do. And like, you know, especially from a fellow standpoint, um, I wanted to provide that sort of education exposure for for people who followed me or looked at my content. So um, what I would say is, yes, follow accounts that vibe with your understanding or oh, need to understand what's going on um, or wanting, you know, wanting more exposure in that in that sense. But um, that's kind of the way I I went around it. Playing off of Wally's question. We actually see a lot of glamour in medicine, especially with the prevalence of Grey's Anatomy. I believe there's like 20 seasons now. I don't know when they're going to stop. But I've, you know, I've never watched Grey's Anatomy. Same. I have never watched Grey's Anatomy too. I just, it's, it's just, I just don't know. Like what, like it just doesn't, it just doesn't stick with me. But a lot of people like, you know, I have met a lot of pre-meds that like do take inspiration from Grey's Anatomy. And like, you know, there's no shame in that, whatever inspires you. But honestly, you need to know, um, both sides of the coin to like really engage in medicine. So I just wanted to know, was there any aha moment or like an epiphany you had when um, in your, like your med school career or even like as an undergrad where you're like, you know what, GI is the field, field I want to go into. Well, did you have a moment like that? Or <laughs> if not, then talk us through what, what made you want to be a GI? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Cause I feel like I get this uh, question a lot and it's because like, I feel like not many people, people are like, you know, I think many of us who go into medical school think we're going to be like neurosurgeons or cardiothoracic surgeons and we want to, you know, and like in Grey's Anatomy, like the, there's one resident that does all these surgeries and you're just like, I want to be that person. And when you look at like the actual reality of like training and like what you're doing and what you're applying for and what exposure you're getting, it's really not any of that. And even like when you're looking at TV shows. I, I watch some TV shows now, like Transplant and like, and not, not like name dropping shows, but like The Good Doctor and stuff like that. And I'm like, 
man, like this one resident is in the ER and then they're somehow in like on the floors and then like they're in the OR and I'm like, this is not real, <laughs> you know? So um, I would say like, so my path into GI was actually pretty unexpected. Um, in medical school, even like when I graduated medical school, I was a fourth year medical student and I, I sincerely thought I was never going to become a gastroenterologist just because I felt like I, like it was my worst subject in medical school. Mm -hmm. um, it was just something like I didn't really vibe well with. I, I liked cardiology. I liked the physiology. I liked the idea of like procedures. So I was like, so actually initially, so I thought I was going to become a neurosurgeon. That didn't work out. And then um, for many reasons, I just, you know, it wasn't something that I was like into after some time. And then I still wanted to do surgery because I knew I wanted to do stuff with my hands. So I knew I went into medical school knowing that at least I want to do something with my hands where wherever I'm, what, whatever I'm working on, I want to see the direct effect of my therapy. You know, so if I, if I'm like closing this or clipping this, like it should do this. You know, so if, if this happens, then then what? Then Z happens. So, and I, I, I'm not I'm not a very patient person. So, you know, thinking about internal medicine, thinking about those like hours of rounding, really like had had my head spinning. But, um, so I initially thought I was gonna become a neurosurgeon. Then I was like, I'm good at cardiology, so I'm gonna become a cardiothoracic surgeon. Then I did my surgery rotation. I was like, it's not the way I want to think about my patients. It's not the type of environment I don't like. The OR. Um, I hate feeling cold, so I, I like didn't want to do. So I didn't think about becoming a cardiothoracic surgeon anymore, even though I did a lot of my research in it, especially in like the first like summer of like between my first and second year of medical school. Um, and then I was like, I still want to do something procedural. So I was like, I'm good at cardiology. I'll do interventional cardiology because at least I'll get my hands on procedures. And then this is something that people don't tell you until like much later, but like in order to become like an interventional cardiologist, you have to do seven years of training after medical school in order to get your hands on something like that. So I was like, I can't wait seven years. This is un unreal. I was like, okay, how do I marry my um, love of medicine, love of all like the, you know, hemonc, ID. I liked all of it. I liked learning about the physiology. So then I fell into GI and someone told me about GI actually much later because um, I didn't really have an understanding that like GI was so procedural. I always thought like, okay, like they, they give you medications and vitamins and they treat like, you know, stomach issues and constipation. Like that's literally what my whole understanding, even through medical school guys, like I'm in medical school and I thought this was like what GI gastroenterologists did. So, um, Anyway, so I spoke to some of my colleagues and they were like, hey, like you like procedures, you know, you can do pretty cool stuff in GI as a PGY4. So like fourth, four years, of your fourth year um, after medical school. And I was like, why not? But then um, I was like, okay, I'm not sure if I really like this. So as a, um, as a first year medicine resident, um, I asked my department if they could put me into two electives and the first elective the earliest elective I wanted I wanted it to be GI because I knew if I want if I chose GI it, it's a competitive specialty and I had to know early on in order for me to get my connections my research 
whatever, whatever, and check all those boxes. And we all are going to, you're going to check those boxes every step of the way. But I would just say, like, keep an open perspective and like a, a bird's eye perspective on it too, which is easier to say than do. Anyway, but um, that's kind of how I felt to GI. I, I like instantly loved it after I did my first rotation in it as a med medical resident. I saw what they did in the endo suite and I was like, I want to do this. Um, so fast forward, um, I am absolutely in love with the field and I can't be, I think every day I do something in GI just makes me fall in love with it more and more because I realize how, um, how exciting it is to work with these new tools. And there's a lot more advancements in GI that are, that are just coming out. And there's, there's a lot of things that we're doing endoscopically that were previously done surgically. Um, and the outcomes are better. People are in the hospital less um so really exciting times dr Dvani, regardless of how you made your decision to get into gi uh, i remember that when i talked to you recently the one thing that really stood out about you was just how passionate you were about the field and how how your face just seemed to light up whenever you talked about anything gi related and just just in the following the theme of bringing medicine back to reality and what it really is I thought we'd get like a personal first-hand experience from you. And if you could perhaps just talk us through what the typical day in the life of a GI fellow looks like. Yeah, sure. Um, so as a GI fellow, so um, keep in mind, you've completed three years of internal medicine residency by now. So if it wasn't for fellowship, you'd be essentially an attending, um, you know, a hospitalist or working in the outpatient clinic. So you have some level of, um, confidence when it comes to your medical decision making and your plans and you know overall interaction with patients um, as a fellow and every, I think every fellowship is different like every medical residency is different like every surgical residency is different so it, it really depends on the type of hospital you're working at what their resources are um, I've worked in both resource poor institutions and, and communities and worked in you know now Stony Brook, which is very resource rich. Um, um, as a fellow, I would say, you know, you have your call schedule. So you're, um, depending on how many fellows are in your program, your call is divided accordingly. And then a lot of programs will either, you'll do call like more as a, as a first year, second year, and then it kind of tapers off as a third year as you attain seniorship. So, um, and then the level, so you, there are also programs where you um, get to do, where you get to scope, essentially. Um, and as a first year fellow, the timing of when you get exposed to which kind of scoping, so there's an upper endoscopy and there's a colonoscopy. In my program, we were exposed from day one. And uh, you're a consultant, so you're not a primary service. Um, although in some institutions, you might be a primary service, but for most, uh, fellowships, you are not your consultant, which means that you're you're being called by a primary service who's already taken care of the patient and has a question for you. So, say like someone is bleeding or they're vomiting blood or they're pooping blood, they'll call they call someone like me, a fellow like me, and I will come in um, either emergently overnight if it's an emergency to perform a procedure or the next morning. Um, so as a fellow, you you get that exposure. You you do upper endoscopies, you do colonoscopies. Um, if you are interested in this other field of GI, like advanced endoscopy, you can also do more advanced procedures, like 
uh, ERCPs and EUSs. And that's a little bit more nuanced, um, which I think, um, you know, might be above this conversation. But um, the, uh, as a fellow, you are on call a lot, um, you, you hold a pager a lot. So um, it, is, it is a rough, um, at, at least first year. And it, the, the learning curve is pretty steep because not only are you learning uh, a new specialty altogether, you're also learning like tactical skills that you don't learn in uh, internal medicine. So as a, and I would say this because I know that there are internal medicine residencies that don't necessarily focus on procedures. Mine did, where we were able to do paracentesis and lumbar punctures. And even as a medical student, I was able to do, you know, other types of procedures. And I felt comfortable doing procedures. But um, so it depends on what your background is and what your exposure is and where you're training. So as a fellow, um, the exciting thing is that Every day is a learning experience. You're gonna, you're going to learn at an accelerated rate, but um, you're finally doing what you love. Um, and at least I would hope, if, especially if you're working towards such a such a very competitive goal. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the life. But um, so certain programs also have like research time, elective time, and again, depending on the program and depending on your preferences, you can you can have like half. Uh, of your entire fellowship dedicated uh, solely to research in more research-driven programs. Um, but I want, me personally, I wanted to build on my tactical skills and my clinical skills more than research. I'm not really much one to enjoy doing research at all. I just did it to check off the boxes, to be honest. But um, uh, I, who knows, maybe in the future, if I have more resources and more time, I would do it. But uh, I, my whole focus was to be a great endoscopist. So that's kind of where I am right now. I see, I see. Um, and your goal is very um, challenging and high achieving. I'll give you credit for that. And it does seem like a very dynamic field where you're talking about all these scoping methods, techniques, and way to talk to patients and holding pagers. It does seem like a very stressful field as well. And I'm pretty sure you've had your fair share of mentors guiding you in this um, very challenging field as well. So I just wanted to ask you, what are some important lessons and experiences you've learned from your mentors in the field of GI? And how did that really shape your experience as a GI fellow or basically shape your experience of the field of medicine? Sure. Um, so as a medical resident, when I decided I wanted to pursue gastroenterology, I, seek, I actually seeked out attendings and this happens you know not just as a pre-med as a medical student where you're like cold turkey emailing people or trying to build connections this happens at almost every stage of your career in medicine so i um emailed um basically a few people in gi and see and saw who was willing to meet with me <laughs> and you know give me their time um which you know obviously like is an honor and an opportunity in, in and of itself but um I wasn't afraid of reaching out to people because I, I wanted to know what I didn't know. And um, in doing that, uh, I met with people, I, I met with gastroenterologists in different specialties like inflammatory bowel disease, motility, advanced endoscopy, um, just to kind of see like, okay, yeah, I know, now I know I like GI, like, do, do I want to like, do anything further than that? So I think I've, 
I kind of created like an environment in a space that um, I was able to do that and make make an educated decision. But um, that piece of advice I would say is like seek out those mentors early. Um, look up web pages. I would go on websites and see like who was a leader in whatever area I was um, looking to learn more about. So um, I did that, and yes, you get you get you might get several non-responders and that's okay but the people who do respond the the people who um i ended up being some of like my closest friends and mentors um and as even as a fellow i did the same thing i seek i like as a fellow you're working more directly with the gastroenterologist because you're now a fellow and you're in the program versus like as a resident i think you know you have like more of a glass wall view as a resident because like you're not a fellow and you're not directly interacting with the GI department as much um but as a fellow I think you have more opportunity to network and also learn more about the different specialties in GI and I, I did, didn't mention this earlier but even as a fellow you are doing a bunch of outpatient blocks too so you're seeing all of these specialties in real time and how patients are being managed and what are the new therapies coming out so um it again it depends on like what exposure your program has so my program at Stony Brook has um, basically specialists in all subtype subfields of GI um, which is a, a blessing to have and a pretty rare so um, yeah absolutely so Dr. Lani I I wanted to ask you know most people probably think that the way it goes is that you know you're in med school you decide what specialty you want to go into and just like that you just work towards it and clearly you know your story it shows us that you know it's really not because a you don't know what all the specialty is about b you don't know that if you want to do it is it the right fit for you um and it just seems that you know from talking to you from meeting you that you know gi just really seems perfect for you um and you really seem to love it right but i i wonder though have you had any sort of case or any sort of moment that was extremely challenging or difficult um, in your time after med school or while practicing? And has that ever made you question your decision of being a GI physician? Mm, I wouldn't say like a particular case ever made me question whether I still wanted to pursue GI. I think I might have, I definitely might have been a little intimidated, like in the whole applying process. And I think that that ends up hindering a lot of people from actually applying to the specialty because um, of this notion that it's competitive and you need a lot of um, research and a lot of you know uh, great letters and and it's kind of it's kind of like there are these like main steps in like your career and like one of them is getting into medical school and then the next one is getting into your the specialty of your your dreams and like I think what ended up you know there there was a point I think in my medical residency where I was just like, you know what, maybe I should just take a year off, do an attending year, be more marketable on my CV and then apply to GI fellowship. And I felt like, um, I, I just couldn't see myself do that here. You know, um, part of also the reason like being compensated so well, and then all of a sudden being like back to like a trainee compensation, that was one aspect. And then the second one was that the only reason why I decided to go into internal medicine was to do something procedural. So I was like, you know what, like I'm just gonna suck it up. I'm gonna just give it my best shot, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And I think that's kind of been my like, my whole approach to 
my entire career in medicine and life in general, I just throw a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. And like, you never know like what, what ends up being like that aha moment for the person interviewing you. Like, you know, I want this person like in my, in my, in the program and vice versa. Like you're, you're also interviewing these programs. And I, I, this is a piece of advice I always give to like people who are applying to any residency or even medical school. Like you have to really see if like the places you're applying to, if you're there, could you see yourself happy there and like, like, be satisfied with the resources that you have available because there are some places that are great for whatever. Like if you're interested in like, I don't know, cell biology, I don't know, I'm saying something totally left field, but like you're, if you're interested in something like that, then you want to choose an institution that has like, I don't know, a cell bio lab. I don't know. But like something where you're just like, okay, like what do you have to offer me in order for me to grow in a way that I want to grow or like, I, I want to see my career going because like we already know, like you're smart, right? You you've taken the MCAT, you've done, you crushed like your exams, or like you and you have a drive. But like really, what what sets apart all of these things is really um, personal. And location's really important. Being close to family, friends, like loved ones, I I think that plays into all of these decisions. And I there again, like there's I know I I want to sit there and be like, this is the formula in order to get here. And there is no formula. Like, it's just everyone's experience is different. And if you want it, just keep going for it. And don't let people tell you otherwise. Like, I've had moments in my very young career where people were just like, it's too competitive. Do not apply. Oh, like, you know, what if you want to have a family? And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, what what, what are you even trying to say here? Like, I can't apply to something or can't do something because I don't know. I want to fan like it. And I think people have this like notion where like specialties like GI where people are like, Oh, you, you know, it's hard to have a family and like lifestyle. And actually like, one of the great things about GI and also one of the major reasons why it's, it's so competitive in the way it is, is because it offers that versatility in your schedule. It offers that lifestyle. It offers like that um, ability to just, you know, family plan or like you you could really make whatever you want with the specialty. And I think now more and more other fields of medicine are doing that. And as a physician, you could really create, you could be as busy as you want to be, I would say. Um, but, you know, previously, I don't think that was the case. But now I think things are evolving in medicine. Right. Absolutely. Um you know, Dr. Vani, G. I, I feel like I'm like you in that I, I really want to do something procedural, something with my hands um, in medicine. And, you know, I've had some exposure to GI, you know, I've shattered a, a GI physician and it really is, you know, amazing. Like the, all the different things um, you can do, like with, with the endoscope, like, you know, one second, you're just like looking with the camera, the next you're taking a biopsy. Um, so it's just a, a crazy range of different things uh, you can do. And, kind of going into the general public and how not everyone has that fair understanding of a specific specialty, even something like GI. Um, I think that, that different fields have different, you know, notions about them that people have and different, you know, just strange thoughts that people have that perhaps show their immaturity when looking at the fields. So, and perhaps I have that, um, that by that um, subconscious bias as well, implicit bias as well. 
So when I asked you if you had some kind of difficult or challenging case, I was so sure that you were going to talk about some some crazy encounter with some form of excrement or something from the GI tract or something. <laughs> but just out of curiosity, have you had any any sort of, you know, cool, maybe <laughs> scary experience like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the exciting thing about GI is that you really don't know what you're going to see until you get there. And um, I think the really nice thing about um, the specialty is that you are trained in a way that you're given all the tools. Like these are all your tools. These are in your belt. Okay. You know how each one works. You know what, what are the benefits or the downsides of using each tool and how to use them. And I think that's the main part of doing anything procedural when you're a surgeon, when you, you know what your sutures are, you know what your instruments are doing. And then when you get inside, that's part of the critical thinking process. It's like, okay, I'm seeing something. So like, one of the things that really get me excited, even in the middle of the night when someone's calling me in an emergency at like two in the morning and that'll still get me out of bed. And like, I, I don't mind it because it's just so gratifying. And so, it, so therapeutic for me as well to like see someone get better um, just by what I'm doing. But um, one of the, one of the instances would be like someone who has like cirrhosis and like they have like a variceal bleed or like you develop these like these um veins at the end of your esophagus and it's because like the highway is kind of like blocked in a way so you get these engorged veins and as you as your liver gets more sick these veins get larger and um sometimes they can burst and they're fatal these bursts these like bleeds are fatal um and if if, if, if you don't go in, if you don't treat that bleed, um, the person can die. And um, I've seen cases where I've done that, like, you know, I've had um, someone who was very sick and they're, they come to the emergency room and they're vomiting blood and they're pooping blood and they're, they're, they're like on the, on the brink of death. And you go in with your endoscope after giving them tons of blood and, you know, you know, all the support you need to give them. And you take a band and you just band it. And that's it, the bleeding stops. And when the bleeding stops, you're just like, and the person gets better and they stabilize and they get, they leave the hospital like a few days later. That, that's just something that's so gratifying to me. But what I'm trying to say is like, um, having, like you don't know what you're gonna see when you, before you go in. But when you go in, you know, okay, I have a banding kit. This is what it does. And this is how I know how to use it. So if I see something like this, I'm gonna use it this way. Um, or if you see a bleeding ulcer, you're like, okay, I have clips or I have cautery and I, I have that at my disposal. And it really just takes like, a, you know, this, the basic knowledge of endoscopy and the skill that you've learned already as a fellow. Um, and you just, you know, implement that and you, you, you treat your patient and you, you seeing, seeing, um, a bleed that stops because of what you did is the most gratifying thing in the world. Like, or say like, say someone has um, a stone stuck in their bile duct and that's causing them to be septic and they're, they're hypotensive. And you know, that's also something that can't be treated with just antibiotics. You go in, you, un you, you remove that stone out of the duct. And I'm sure you've seen that, you know, recently probably with the advanced team at Stony Brook uh, Wally, but, um, seeing that seeing a person gets better after what you did like that's that's i think some of the most gratifying aspects of being a clinician 
you don't know what you're going to see until you get there. I, I really like that. I just, I just wrote it down. I think that's a, it's a nice mantra to have maybe when pursuing, you know, medicine life even. And I think when you apply that to, to your field, it, it just shows that it's, it just seems like the epitome of like critical thinking and, you know, thinking on your toes. So. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, like, I mean, and that kind of applies to like throughout, you know, medicine in your career, like, um, I didn't know what I was going to experience until I got there and I experienced it and I was like, okay, this is great. Like I, or some things were not so great. And I'm like, I never want to do that again. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the beauty of, of having that, that underneath your belt. I see. I see. I understand. Well, Dr. Advani, honestly, GI is a very competitive field and you were talking about how a lot of people will tell you to stay away from competitive field and give you personally to me, these are BS reasons where it's like, Oh, you want like a family or anything like that. As if you can't be a successful doctor and have a family. Like I don't know the correlation and where that logic comes from, especially in the field of medicine, because it's so logic heavy. It just, it just baffles me. It just baffles me. And honestly, you're, you're one of three female doctors fellows in your program right now. And that must carry some sort of stress. It's like, because right now, like, I'm just saying, seeing myself like, oh, I'm like a son of an immigrant. I'm an immigrant myself. Like, yeah, the weight is definitely on my shoulders to like make my country proud, make my people proud. And honestly, like that weight is very heavy. And especially in terms of women in medicine, they are very powerful to go into a very I'd say competitive field and outshine everybody and have that pressure to, you know, just be successful in their own accord. So I just wanted to ask you, what challenges did you face as a woman in medicine from your colleagues, from your superiors, and how did that shape your experience in pursuing the field of medicine? So um, thank you for that question. Um, Like you, I am a son, I'm I'm not a son, but I'm a daughter of an immigrant. And um, it definitely wasn't easy for us um, growing up in a very tough city to grow up in. Um, And I think from a very young age, I think my, um, my whole outlook has changed because I come from a single parent home where my mother was like the breadwinner and she was everything. So she is everything still and where she you know, she showed me that women could really do anything that they want and they put their mind to. And there was really no, um, there was really no um, uh, situations where they could be held down or, or told that they couldn't do something. And I I was able to, I was lucky enough to see it firsthand um, in my own household. So um, I went into my entire career with that mindset where it doesn't matter if I'm a female. It doesn't matter um, what I what I do or how I do it. I'm doing it, and I'm doing it well, and I'm doing it the best way I could. Um, so that was one aspect. That I think mindset. My mindset was different. Like even if people were to tell me things or I heard things or you know even from like certain colleagues or even in in in, um, in uh, undergrad, like I was hearing things from my female peers, like, oh, I want to do this, but I can't do this because of this X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, why, why not? Like, you could totally do it. Like, there's no, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to. So it's a mindset. Um, so I, I remember when I was applying to GI, I was, um, of the seven people that were applying, um, I was one of two women. And then when I was in my interviews itself, I was probably 
I was definitely the minority. Um, um, I'm Indian, so from an Indian standpoint, um, I wasn't a minority because there's a bunch of us in medicine and especially GI and cardiology. I don't know why we love those two areas of medicine, but we do. Um, but as a female, um, I was definitely either 15% of the representation in the room in any given, in any given um, interview session. So it, it got me really thinking because um, I was lucky enough to be at a program where I saw a lot of female GI attendings. And um, I was like, wow, like I didn't really see that there was like a disparity um, initially. But then when I kind of got to the end of like toward the interview process and now even in fellowship, I realized I was like, there's not that many of us. In the, and even less so in, in um, advanced endoscopy where you're doing fluoroscopy and you're doing more like um, interventional uh, GI procedures. They're, you know, high complication uh, type procedures. And also less, more, even more or less in leadership positions, which like I, I just sat there and I was like, oh my God, how am I going to like, you know, tackle all of this? But I, I, it always brings me back to like when um, this thing, growing up and seeing you know what my mother was able to do with the with what she had available and i was like you know this is nothing like i i can i can i can overcome much more and i think that's also the reason why i'm also here on this platform as a gi fellow representing women in medicine because i want be, i want women to know that this is a viable option for us and like this is we our patients need female GI physicians as well, as much as they do as male GI physicians. And there was, there was a case that really struck me recently and it got me thinking, and this was before I became like public on social media and everything. And I was like, something has to change, like something has to give, you know, people, we're all, we're doing all these like surveys and like all these like research and like, it's all being like tucked away in all these journal articles and no one's reading. And I'm like, Oh, where where is this information going to? It's not going to the people that it needs to go to, right? Like people need to be inspired. Young females need to be inspired. So um, uh, there was a patient I had who um, came into the hospital and like she, you know, she was pretty late in her years and she came in with like some blood that she was seeing in her stool. And she, I asked her, I was like, did you ever have a colonoscopy? She's like, no. And I'm like, why not? And like, why, why have you never had a colonoscopy? She's like, well, you know, I was looking for like a woman um, gastroenterologist and I couldn't find one. And every, you know, wherever I was, there was this one male gastroenterologist. And I was like, I was like, you could have still gotten your colonoscopy. Like, you know, but she didn't feel comfortable. And actually speaking to so many more of my other female GI, uh, female patients, they have a gender preference. And I understand like, it's, going, it's like going to the urologist and like going to the gynecologist. Like some people have like gender preferences and uh, us as physicians, we need to provide a platform where we provide that availability for, for that representation, you know, for people to choose. So anyway, um, long story short, it was a sad story because we ended up doing a colonoscopy on her and I found a raging colon cancer. And I was like, this, this could be, colon cancer is 100% per, preventable. Like it's, it's not something like, you know, it happens out of the blue. I, I, there are these rare case, cases where you see you know, younger patients, especially, you know, with um, Black Panther and, you know, all those other stories that you hear. But I'm like, here's a person, if I, if she just had a colonoscopy, maybe like 10 years before this, this, this would have been caught and this would have been taken care of. And she wouldn't have had to have this news given to her. So it, it got me thinking. It got me really like thinking long and hard about 
like how I can contribute as a physician to the future generation of gastroenterologists and even medical professionals and also for my patients in the future like what can I offer to them and how how I can be of service to them and help prevent these very preventable diseases right I think I think it's such a it's such a prevalent problem you know the the lack of female representation in medicine and it's even worse to see you know just how widespread it is because you were telling us this story and immediately I thought back to like three other stories I've heard where, you know, a patient goes in um, to the ER and uh, there's a male medical student, a female doctor, and they immediately think the male medical student is the doctor and they don't think anything the, 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 the actual doctor is saying. They don't take it seriously. But I think this is 100% something that, you know, needs to be addressed. And you mentioned that even in your own journey, you know, other other women would also make these kinds of remarks and they, you know, question like your journey of going into a competitive field. And I think that just makes it, you know, even worse when like, when um, even women themselves like start thinking these things. But I think your endeavor, your, your project of, you know, starting Dr. Scopes with guts and like sharing your experiences in this competitive field, I think that's really, you know, helping really contributing, really increasing the understanding that, Oh, like it's, it's just a medical field, you know, and, a doctor can be anyone a doctor can be from any any race any gender whatnot and and something else you also touched on was that not only are you a woman in medicine but you're also a south asian woman in medicine so i i found that very i found it very interesting to think that you know on the one hand women are very heavily underrepresented in medicine but on the on the other hand south asian people are quite heavily represented in Mm -hmm. medicine right so so i was just wondering you know what what has your personal experience been uh, living through the intersectionality, the interplay of those two identities that you belong to in medicine? Um, that's such a good question. I feel like this is the first time I've ever been asked that question. So I definitely applaud you um, for that question. Um, as a South Asian uh, person or physician um, in a very um, overly represented uh, area of um, life, like medicine, um, I I, I think it varied based on where I was working and actually the patient population that I was surrounded with. So when I worked in the city, um, um, I don't think anyone really questioned whether I was a physician or not, because I think it was mainly because I was South Asian and not because I was a female. Um, and I think that has to do with kind of the exposure of patients in the hospital system. So like if you have, if you have more representation of women, um, South Asian women or women, I mean, um, just South Asians in general, and there is always that notion that like South Asians are either doctors or lawyers or engineers. And I think um, a, a lot of it does hold true in, in some sense. Um, so I, I wasn't ever questioned whether I was, actually, I'll, I'll change that. I wasn't ever questioned whether I was a medical professional. Hmm. Um, as a doctor per se, um, I would say there have been several instances where I've definitely felt like I wasn't, um, respected in that light, um, where I was either called miss or dear or anything aside from doctor. And I think in my mind at that time, I didn't really understand the implications of what that really meant. And I think it was more of a maturity thing. And something I just like learned along the way, um, but now that I, I think 
where I'm currently working and like the environment I'm working, I think, um, uh, you know, there might, there might be several instances where I was definitely not regarded to as doctor either. So I, I think, you know, I am proud of my ethnic background and for what we've achieved, you know, as a group and as a community and the image that we portray. But I definitely think, you know, there is that interplay where I, I'm still a female and I'm, I'm still dealing with these instances where I could not be regarded as a physician or someone in charge or someone of authority in the room. Um, uh, I, I recently shared an experience uh, actually on social media about, um, I was with a male medical student and uh, he's Caucasian, white, and um, I'm just, you know, talking to a patient and the patient directly asked me if I was a doctor, if he was a doctor, despite him being in a short, short white coat. And I, I mean, I don't blame uh, patients for feeling that way or uh, construing us in that matter because, I mean, like you mentioned, Grey's Anatomy, you look, you look at like TV, you look at every, every representation of a doctor is either male and or white. And, and I think the, you know, maybe in certain parts of the country, that's probably true. And that's the majority of the, the doctors that you're seeing, but in more diverse areas, like the cities, like New York city, um, like I'm sure areas of California, um, Florida, like you're, you're looking at like people from different walks of life. So I just, I just think that needs a little bit more time and a little bit more generational awareness rather than like you know, blaming like the current understanding. I see. I see. Well, it is, it is a very prevalent issue. And just another thing that I have noticed, um, I work as a um, patient care tech at Albany Medical Center, and I get a lot of um, experience with patients and doctors. And one thing I really do realize is medicine isn't just, you know, treating the patients. It's a lot of paperwork. I was so surprised that the amount of paperwork is like binders and binders worth of patient information just written by physicians, NPs, PAs. It's just like an intersection of like very bad handwriting <laughs> in one binder. Honestly, sometimes I get to like flip through it. I was like, I can't read anything. So no. I'm just going to go to the computer and see what they charted. So basically, it's just... <laughs> It's just, what's it called? You, you start to realize it's like, yeah, medicine is, is, needs to be very heavily documented, of course. So that's why there's such like heavy documentation and paperwork involved. But there are also um, administration that is also involved in treating patients as well. Because I work in a vascular surgery floor and um, a lot of the cases, what happens is because of poor blood work flow that patients have to have, to have amputations. So when you do have amputations, what follows that is, of course, surgery, and what follows surgery is, of course, rehab. So you have to like work with a lot of administration, whether the insurance will cover this rehab facility or that rehab facility. Right. How can nurses come to your home and like affect like how the patient? So it's just like a whole bunch of issues. So I just wanted to see like you know your stance on you know um, talking about biases in medicine and how you handle biases with administration, and how does that affect patient health. Because I'm pretty sure it, it plays a very big role because if there are barriers between the doctor and the patient, and if that barrier is because of administration bias, it can play a very poor prognosis to the patients and affects the patients in a very negative way, I feel like. Yeah, I think you're basically describing all of our struggles in, in, you know, in one uh, concise way. And 
I think there's really no good answer to this question, Saeed. Um, the reason being is that our um, healthcare system is almost run like a business. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think as healthcare professionals trying to navigate that in a professional manner and, you know, sometimes a very political manner um, is something that you kind of just learn along the way. The biases, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say that there are necessarily biases in that, in that space, but there are barriers. There are major barriers for both providers and patients, especially where, you know, we are recommending a certain treatment or a certain medication and the patient's insurance does not accept it. And we're sitting there for hours trying to get prior authorization. And, you know, we have all this other stuff to do for other patients. And it definitely, it, it stretches us uh, in more ways than one. So what I would say, like, as a um, provider, the area of medicine that you choose um, will dictate how much exposure you have to stuff like that. So if you are outpatient based, you are going to deal with stuff like that. And I don't know when it's going to change or when it's going to get easier for patients or providers, but patients at the end are the ones suffering because we, ha we are not able to get them the care that they, that they might need at sometimes. And sometimes it, you know, a lot of times it does work out and like they're able to get like coverages for their procedures or their medications. But there is a, there is a portion of patients who aren't able to get that. And um, I think if you have open, if you advocate for your patient, um, I think that that speaks volumes. And if you take the time out to advocate, I know like every day becomes so stressful and you have all these other checklists to, to finish off. But um, if you, you know, your efforts don't, don't fall on deaf ears. I think if you, if you communicate with your social work team, if you communicate with the people that uh, are instrumental in getting that patient, you know, the authorization it needs, they need, or the, the a rehab center that they need, or, you know, what have you, I think that that's, that's all you can do. And I think if you can at least do that part, then really it's on them. And it's like, that's all you can do at that stage. And I, I think that's the struggle, the internal struggle that we have, and that's some of the realities that we have to face as medical professionals, not just as physicians, but as like PAs, pharmacists, like there are gonna be so many barriers because medicine is very, um, it ha there's a very business approach to it in a lot of systems. And you'll realize sometimes it's all about productivity and about the numbers and about the percentages and, you know, it, it sometimes leaves the patient at a disadvantage. So um, I would say as, you know, when you're going through your medical profession, just take the things that you want um, and you, you, the positive things that you want to implement in your life and your practice. Um, sometimes there is negatives that come, with, come along with it, but you just have to navigate them in a very professional um, manner. That is, that's great advice, um, Dr. Bunny. I think what I've gotten from this conversation is that, you know, we're, me and Saeed, we're pre-meds. Uh, we're, we're barely scratching the surface of, of our journey to medicine. And what I'm realizing is that there's so much, even more so than, than I would have thought, that we don't know, you know, um, yet. Uh, we don't know what the different fields of medicine are like. We don't um, know what the fully understand the implicit biases in medicine, you know, what it's like being from different groups 
um, and going through the medical journey. And, and, you know, just the whole time I've been thinking like that one thing that you said really ties into it really well. You don't know what you're going to see until you get there. And that's really why we wanted to bring, you know, a physician onto the podcast because no one really, you don't fully understand, you know, what it is to practice medicine until you're practicing medicine. And it's just the reality that no amount of um, studies or med school can fully prepare you for what you're about to experience. And, you know, you're now in your, in your, I believe, I believe sixth year of practicing as fifth, fifth year of practicing as a, as a physician. And, you know, you want to go on and specialize even further um, as I know from what you said, but since you're at this unique point of, you know, where you can reflect back and do some retrospection as well as looking forward to the future, what's some advice, just, you know, some like important advice that you would give maybe your past self um, before you embarked on this journey? And, and what are, what are your thoughts uh, going forward and acknowledging that, you know, the, the road to where you want to get is long, but it's, it's something that you love. Um, yeah, so I have some points that I still live by. And I think, um, even, you know, these are things that I've just kind of like learned along the way, but one, the first thing I would say for yourself and for your mental well being and you know, your career, yes, that's important, but it's advocate for yourself. If you do not advocate for yourself, if you do not voice your needs and voice your wants and voice your concerns, things are not going to happen. And I'm going to say that again, because it's just so important. I know, you know, I actually was someone who was so shy. I never spoke like words that like I would, things that were, I was thinking. And I, one thing I would say is advocate for yourself and like be vocal about your needs because no one's going to sit there and be like, Oh, you know, this is Wally. He needs X, Y, and Z. Like they don't have time for that. No one has time for that. You have time for that because it's in your best interest. So you need to advocate um, for yourself. The second thing I would say is keep, and and this is pretty broad advice. I think the second point, but um, keep an open mind. Um, I think, you know, premature closing on like a specialty or field might land you in a position that you don't necessarily want to be in. Like I have had colleagues where they just wanted to do surgery and they got into surgery residency and they were like, I do not want to do this, but they've, they, they've wasted a year. And like, I think even if that happens, that's fine. And that, that just adds to your experience as like a person, but um, don't keep an open mind. I mean, just, just keep an open mind and um, really, just extract when you go into your rotations when you go into any shadowing experience see see yourself doing what they're doing picture yourself in their shoes and ask yourself can i can i do this is this something i want to do and you might not necessarily get that perspective as a pre-med student standing in the corner of the clinician's office like it might be hard to do that and i understand that which is why I wouldn't be too hard on my on yourself about not getting that exposure that you think you need right now. You will get that exposure at some point. It, it probably not might might not be now. Maybe you have a connection in medicine and someone's willing to give you that extra level of exposure. But because it's okay if you don't have it now, that's what I'm saying. Um, and then the um, the third thing 
I would say as a piece of life advice is be kind to yourself um, and be and accept that not everything is going to follow into checklists and not everything is going to be perfect. And actually you having those imperfections is what makes you perfect. Like as, as a person, as a clinician, when you're in front of your patient, you can use those experiences to your advantage. You could use those experiences where, you know, you've had setbacks to, to, to relate more to your patients or to relate more to your community. And that makes that, that, really my setbacks have been my biggest strength because I've been able to talk to patients in a way that they totally relate to my experience and I can relate to them. And that, that just creates a different level of bonding that is, is not something that you can forge, to be honest. So those are three major pieces of advice. And take care of yourself. Take care of your mental health. Do the things that you still love. I know it's really hard. But if you're into painting, if you're into cooking, if you're into whatever way you de-stress, keep doing it. Do not stop. You know, Dr. Advani, I always um, tell people, this is like a recent realization of mine, that talking to, to doctors such as yourself who've just been through everything that, you know, we're trying to consider going into, it's always so refreshing in that, you know, they won't tell you like how all the nitty gritty matters but it's just the, the small important things about how you handle yourself, how you deal with yourself in your life that really matters at the end of the day. And, you know, your advice is, um, I think it's definitely going to gonna help us down the road. In fact, I think I, I saw Saeed doing something that, uh, that I was doing too, just like jotting down. I think we have the same things written, you know, voice your needs, keep an open mind, <laughs> uh, be kind to yourself. So I, I really, really appreciate that because that's not as pre-med, you know, we don't have, um, there isn't a, a doctor at every, at every corner. Um, we're lucky to be in Stony Brook and have, you know, the Stony Brook hospital across the road, but um, it's, it's always nice to, to have a conversation with a physician like that. Yeah. I used to always be intimidated to be honest when I was in your shoes. Like I could be so intimidated talking to like even medical students. I'm like, Oh my God, they have a cult. Like I can't talk to them. Like I'll just talk to the nurse over there. Like, and which, you know, made no sense in hindsight. Cause I feel like I could have gained so much more just by talking to someone who is in a position that I wanted to be in in one day. So definitely like, I think as physicians, like med students, like you were talking about the other day, like all of us just want to pay it forward and all of us want just like the best for the future of our patients. And the only way to really ensure that is to make sure the next generation of doctors are awesome. So. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thank you for all your advice, Dr. Advani. It was, it was a great conversation. And as our conversation comes to a close, I just want to say, Dr. Advani, we're so humbled, so grateful that you took some of your valuable time out of your busy schedule. I know you're very, very busy to come and talk to us about your journey to medicine. We definitely learned a lot and especially gained a lot of insight into what being a physician is like and know how long the journey is. And honestly, us as pre-meds, our knowledge only just goes to, I guess, the doors of medical school and anything beyond that, we're in like totally unfamiliar grounds. We just don't know what's going on and we don't have much knowledge about that. And it is definitely an unfathomable idea to me right now, even though like I'm going to apply to medical school soon and same with Wally, the journey is really, really long. And talking to med students, talking to physicians, I kind of am getting in the groove of understanding that 
it's I'm glad it's that long because it allows us to appreciate the time and effort we can spend on perfecting our craft to ensure that our patients feel better, get better, and any way we can make their lives better and just pay it forward. So to everybody listening, all of our listeners, if you'd like to know more about Dr. Advani and our journey as a gastroenterologist, please make sure to follow her Instagram. Her handle is Dr. Sculpts with Guts, D-R-S-C-O-P-E-S. W-I-T-H-G-U-T-S, which is very fitting. <laughs> so thank you, Dr. Advani, for coming on as a host. And listeners, if you'd like to hear more episodes like this, you can find us on our website, www.jonichaibhais.wixsite.com. And you can also find us on Spotify under Chai with the Pre-Med Guys. As always, thank you for tuning in. Until the next couple of chai. See you. Thank you. I'm feeling jittery. I'm feeling types of jittery my body's about to burst pistoling like john wick running late for work where it all came from jumping like jason tatum all without a frame of reference all types of hey chai lovers if you've made it this far i must inform you that your cup of chai is now empty that being said please leave a review and subscribe on spotify and apple podcasts what happens when you do this is that my chai supply is magically replenished I then send a cup of chai over to Saeed to be taste-tested before it's sent to your doorstep. You won't actually receive this chai, but the warmth and taste of this beautiful beverage will reach you nonetheless in the form of a brand new podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please DM us on Instagram with any feedback, and be sure to check out our friend Dre Storm, who's provided us with this awesome outro music. That's D-R-E-I-S-T-O-R-M on Spotify and Instagram. One last thing. Life can get tough. But when it does, just sit back, take a sip of chai. Ooh.